All right, let me pray for us and open up our time together. Dear Father God, what a blessing it is that we can come before you to hear your word and to know that you are kind to not only provide us your word, but to provide us your spirit that we may understand and comprehend and also have an assurance that your word will bear fruit in our lives for those that would believe that are your true disciples. We pray, Lord, may you prepare our hearts to receive the message tonight from your word. Help us to understand what a true believer is, what the Christian life ought to look like, and the demonstration and witness that it ought to bear to the watching world. But then also, may we look to it for ourselves. May we weigh ourselves and see whether we are those who bear the testimony of Christ's gospel. For that is our assurance, that's our hope, and that's our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so for tonight, we have the privilege of going to God's Word, and our topic for tonight is the call to witness the gospel from 1 Peter chapter 3. And so to um, open that up, let me go to the next slide. We're going to consider some questions here. As we've been going through the topics of the FOF book, the Fundamentals of the Faith book, we've had an opportunity to study together different doctrines or different the theology of who God is, who we are, and most recently, um, what the church is, um, the spiritual gifts therein. And today we come to a very practical aspect of the fundamentals of the faith. What is a Christian? What does a Christian look like? And what should that witness or testimony look like from the Christian or from the house of believers to those in the world? And so what I posed here is a couple questions for us to consider to help frame our, our time together. What makes somebody a, a Christian? We've talked about salvation before, and so hopefully some of those um, topics and ideas are coming to mind. Maybe different confessions or different aspects of theology. But then also I want you to consider what does that Christian life look like? What evidences or tangible um, aspects can we look at, can we weigh to view the authenticity or the genuineness of a Christian life, that a life truly belongs to Christ. And that's where hopefully we are considering not just for others and not just in an academic sense, where our own lives and where our own hearts lie. Would we confess a hope that agrees with the word of God? Would we maybe look back upon, oh, I made a decision, or I made different choices in agreement with some hope or desire? Or maybe we, in looking more than a moment, what would be the pattern of our lives? All of these things, hopefully, um, I want to prompt your mind to think about as we go to the text tonight. And where we go in First Peter, and we can go to our next slide, we want to see not only our lives, but we want to see our lives in light of the message that Peter gives to believers who are scattered in Asia Minor. This is a time of the early church. And he's writing to those that he identifies as the elect exiles, those who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And to these Christians in the early church, he writes to them 
and identifies them or reassures them that they are those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now that's a powerful identification that he gives to them. He doesn't just say, dear church, so-and-so in these different areas, I have something to tell you. You notice that at the very beginning, he calls them the elect exiles. And this is something that we're going to spend some time with in this epistle and trace out who is Peter really talking to because he calls their attention to their true identity according to the word of God. These are, these, the Christians in the early church were indeed those that were persecuted, those that suffered. They looked different. They smelled different from the world. They didn't participate in the pagan sacrifices. They didn't do the same things that they were saved out of. They didn't talk the same way. They didn't behave the same way. They didn't have the same priorities as those that they used to affiliate with. And this was offensive to those that they used to um, interact with in, that, in those early times. Peter is writing to those new believers or to those young Christians. And he, taught, and he reminds them of their great reality that they are those that are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God and the salvation that they have in Christ. And that last verse, or the last part of that verse, may peace, grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure, is really the aim of what we're looking for in the message tonight. How does Peter communicate grace and peace to those who are strangers, to those who are exiles, to those who don't belong in the world? He points them to the gospel, and we're going to see this as we go on into the next slide. So in the next slide, what we're going to see here is that, just to give an overview of the epistle, is that there are several themes that, we want to, that are going to help us properly understand the passage for tonight. First of all, as we've touched upon, Peter wants, to, wants, his, wants his audience to understand that they are exiles in this world. They don't belong, they're strangers. Again, he says in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. There's an association here that Peter is addressing to those Christians that they belong to God, that they are beloved of God. And so because of that, they've been cast out or they're exiles of the world. How the world treats them or how the world sees them is what he's addressing here. And so there's an identity that we need to have right in our minds. Either somebody will be, belong to God and thereby be an exile of the world, or somebody will remain at home in the world and be cast off or cast away from the Lord. You can only have one or the other. And for Christians, they are exiles strangers in this world because the world doesn't accept them, because the world doesn't accept God. Let's go to the next slide. Another theme that, we'll, that we would see if we go through Peter um, is that believers are called to witness, and we've also talked about this before. As believers, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so believers are called to live commendable in this world, to live in a way that honors God. They're also called to, um, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. There's an associated life that believers are called to live. And Peter makes um, repeated urgings to his audience to remember that the Christian life is to be lived in distinction to this world, not just to be indistinct, but because it is faithful to Christ as Lord. And that's going to be a testimony to the world because that's the task or the mission that the Lord has given them. So believers belong to God. They have a God-given task. And then in the next slide, we'll also see another theme that builds upon this. They also have a God-given motivation. Their hope is given from God because they have a great hope in the Lord. The Lord has made prom- gives them promises and has given them a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is something that, is, that doesn't belong to sinners who are lost in their sin. But there is a motivation that comes from the indwelling spirit that they have a hope, trusting in the promises of God, looking forward to not only the workings of the Spirit now, but also the fulfillment of that in glorification. Believers seek to please the Lord instead of pleasing the world or being accepted by the people. And that's also going to come to bear tonight as well. But in the next slide, we're going to see the main theme for tonight, and really the overarching theme for the epistle is that he's writing to people who are suffering because they don't belong to the world. They don't belong to the world because they belong to God. And because of that, there's going to be circumstances or situations and decisions that, that reveal suffering. And so several verses again here. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Um, That's from chapter 1, verse 6. Believers will be brought through a variety of sufferings and trials because God seeks to prune them and seeks to make them more fruitful. But those sufferings that are highlighted here in in this epistle, in this passage, aren't necessarily death threats, though they could be that. But it could be as simple as in chapter 2, verse 12, when they are encouraged to keep their conduct honorable, that people speak of them as evildoers. People say that even though they're doing good deeds, that these things are evil, these things are wrong. Somebody can slander a Christian. And that's the kind of suffering that we want to keep in mind for tonight as well. And then even in chapter 4, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, right? that could be somebody saying, oh, you're less than smart. This is not wise. There's a better way. You don't need to go through all of that hassle. Those can also be sufferings to question the hope that is placed in the gospel. Essentially, any challenge that comes to a believer or any troubling circumstance, to live honorably or to live faithfully the Christian life, to do what is right before the Lord, is the type of suffering to want to keep in mind. And so, with all these different themes going on, how do we put that together? What's the purpose of First Peter? In the next slide. 
we see that Peter is writing to believers to remind them that they don't belong to this world. So he's writing to remind them of their identity in Christ as opposed to their identity in the world. He's writing to remind them that they still have a God-given task to be witnesses of the Lord and also a God-given motivation that they live for the hope of the gospel, the hope to be pleasing to the Lord, not only now but also in eternity. And then grounding them in the reality that for the here and now, that there will be suffering from the world. Implied throughout is the lordship of Christ. These things happen because the Lord has called them to be his own and to obey him. That's the nature of the Christian life here on this world. And so I would state the overall intent of this book that Peter is writing to, to his audience is to encourage believers who are exiles in this world to live faith, as faithful, which is their obedience, and joyful, which is their hope, witnesses of the gospel of Christ in a hostile world. So Peter is writing to encourage believers to live as faithful and joyful witnesses of the gospel of Christ in a hostile world. This is a message that we need to hear today because the sufferings that we go through are not always dramatic, though they can be. They're not always um, tangible in the sense that you would, they would be the types that you would see on the news or to be in a magazine. But instead, the sufferings that we often face, especially in here in, the, in Silicon Valley, is compromises to live faithfully before the Lord or to pursue, um, pursue the Christian life in a way that, that um, twists or adds on to simple obedience to the Lord. So we need these reminders that our hope isn't in just trying to pursue different results or trying to pursue relief from suffering, but our hope is instead the hope that the Lord gives us in salvation that's made secure in Christ. And so let's go to the next slide for a book outline to see where does our passage fall. And so what we see here is that there's, um, Peter first reminds his, his audience that their salvation is great. And we can read part of this in chapter 1 of First Peter. And starting in verse 3, the first thing that Peter says after his greetings to these um, believers who are suffering is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He first gives thanks to God. He doesn't address their circumstances and situations. He doesn't say, let me know what's going on. And or let me fix things for you, and if you just talk to them a certain way, or if you just make sure you stay out of these different areas, then you won't suffer harm. Instead, he gives thanks to God, and then he references, in the next verse, God's kindness, where it says, continuing in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so powerful passage. And that's the remedy that Peter puts before his believers and that he builds upon throughout the entire epistle, is that the remedy that they need to look forward to in the midst of their sufferings, in the midst of temptations to compromise or to make slight adjustments so they don't suffer as much, or maybe not to be as visible or not to be as vulnerable to attacks or to complaining from those around them, Instead, Peter calls them to remember how great is the salvation that they've received from Christ. How great is God's mercy that they would be saved from the deadness of their sin. And not only that, that they have a salvation, but that it has been won, it has been secured, and it has been entrusted by the power of the living God. That is the basis and the foundation of everything we have, not only to talk about tonight, but indeed for all of the Christian life that there is not only a salvation, but that salvation is secure. And you notice in all these, in that description, that salvation, it's God himself who is the actor. And we are merely those that he uses to put his mercies, great mercies on display. And through all of that, if necessary, there may be various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found or may be proven true. And so that's the foundation that Peter uses to open up the epistle. Remember your great salvation. It's only then that he proceeds to the next section that is going to serve as the overarching subject for tonight is there's a call to live as sojourners or exiles in a hostile world in order to glorify God. The obstacle to glorify God is that there are various um, ops, um, hostilities that need to be dealt with, sometimes externally, but definitely internally. Right? There's the passions of the flesh that need to be dealt with. And that's what's called out here in chapter 2, verse 11. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Rather than focusing upon all the other things that are going on outside, the very opening of this section, Peter addressing his belo- these beloved believers calls them to remember the great war, the greater war that they need to wage war against, which is within their own soul to the glory of God. We can be so easily di- be distracted by considering, oh, the discomforts that we suffer because of sufferings or the discomforts that we face in order to wake up early to spend time with the Lord or to protect time with the Lord. It would be so much easier if I just skipped a few nights here or there, or it'd be so much easier if I just forgot about a few responsibilities. But yet, Peter gives that call to wage war, and first against their own soul. And then from there, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So there's a connection there that we'll dive deeper into. But then all of that is then, again, wrapped up into the security of God in that third section from chapters 4 verse 12 to chapter 5, 11, 
a call to persevere and rejoice. This is not just a one-time thing that, we do, that believers do on their own. But there, there is a security that um, Peter t- calls the believers to entrust in, and it, really it lies in the security of Christ's example and, and in Christ, what Christ wins for believers. And so for tonight, we're going to dive deeper into Peter's encouragement to Christians, suffering as exiles of the world, again, to live obediently before the Lord and live honorably before unbelievers. So let's turn to our passage in the next slide. And we'll turn to chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Um, Oh, sorry, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And really what I want, what we're going to start off with here is just identify that there is an essential truth that believers need to remember. And that's the essential truth that they need in order to suffer well. That's found in verses 13 through 14a. And then after that, the remaining portion of the section really helps the believer to understand how do they carry this out? How do they suffer well to the glory of God? So let's dive in to that first point on the next slide. So the first point for tonight is that essential truth to suffer well is first found in setting right our vertical relationship with the Lord. And Peter introduces this through a rhetorical question that, only, that you can only answer in the negative response. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The obvious answer is, is no one. But when we dig deeper into this, what kind of harm is he talking about? What kind of good is he talking about? Well, context helps us here. If we turn back a few verses, we can see what kind of harm Peter has in mind. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now here we need to pay attention. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And when we look at the word for harm, it's tied to that word evil. Who is there, literally says, who is there who can cause evil to you if you are zealous for doing what is good? The previous verse is talking about, well, in the context, the one that, we are, that we're just thinking about is the Lord. The Lord's blessings are upon those who are righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. They have access to him. They have a relationship with him of, of blessing. But the one that we need to fear, that we need to be careful of, is that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is, t- uh, sal- this is talking about a relationship of salvation. Either there is a relationship or a testimony or a witness of salvation where 
a believer or someone abides in the mercies of God, or somebody will abide in the wrath of God because they only rest in, the, because they are those who are evil, they don't have God's redemption. So who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good since the, since the audience here is believers? Peter is reminding them that if their security is in, if they are truly saved and the truth of what we read in verse 12 is true, that, that the eyes of the Lord are under righteous, then they have nothing to fear regarding the security or their salvation or the hope or the joy of their salvation or the testimony of their salvation. There's nothing that can harm them. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That harm is the Lord's face against those who do evil, the same root word. And so the question that the believers are being asked to consider is, are they truly being zealous for doing what is good? For doing what is good, upright, and useful? What is in line with the calling that God has given to them. Well, that verse continues and it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So it augments that first portion. First of all, there's no one that can truly cause harm to a believer's salvific hope or to standing in salvation. But then if there is some sort of suffering, this is distinct from the harm that was talked about in verse 13. If there is a suffering or if there's some sort of uh, effect that people may have on you, maybe they might hurt your emotions, they might hurt your feelings, they might cause inconveniences to you, that type of suffering. If you're pursuing righteousness and you suffer along the way, you're blessed. All people can do is inconvenience you or hurt hurt the externals. They cannot touch your standing before God. They cannot touch your salvation before the Lord. And so what Peter does is he rearranges suffering, the perspective of suffering, for the believer here. And that's often our, our challenge. As believers, as we go about everyday life, a lot of times we have our eyes just fixed upon what we see in front of us. And there's a concern or there's a preoccupation with this is uncomfortable, or this bothers me. And we see that as overarching or so, so large in our eyes that it can take us away from the things that we ought to be doing for the Lord. And yet, what Peter seeks to do is help us see that that's not how it should be. That the reality of what the believer has in Christ is, is much greater that there's nobody that can harm what's truly valuable, what's truly more, uh, more valuable than gold, which is our security in Christ and the, and the provenness thereof. Instead, what he says is that if you do suffer, just see that there is blessing associated with it. So we can ask ourselves, what is our concern? Are we concerned about our vertical relationship the way we ought to be? Do we see that? Do we see our horizontal troubles or our earthly troubles in light of our vertical blessings? Or do we have things mixed up where 
everything seems like it's the weight of the world is on our shoulders, or we feel like our world is falling apart. Whereas for a believer, our world is secure. Our sphere is secure because we rest in the salvation of the Lord. Well, how do we live this out? How do we suffer then to the glory of God? If we have these things in mind, how do we, how do we pass through it clearly? Well, we'll see that in the next slide. And, that, and we'll take that in two portions. We'll start with the commands. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And so that's, we see these as two commands that go hand in hand. Don't let fear or trouble tear you down or distract you or keep you from the good that you ought to be doing in the Lord. So often our fears, our troubles, our worries take us down from underneath. They sweep our, light, our feet off. There's no good reason to give in to these fears or troubles. If our securities and our hope is indeed in the Lord and in his salvation. Fears and troubles are only empty threats, yet they can seem so large. John 14, verse 1 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's Jesus talking. And that's really the, the hope that we have as believers, is that trouble need not worry us. Trouble need not grip our hearts. All we, ha- we have everything we need in God and in the faith that God gives for us to rest in him. And that's, w- that's what's alluded to in the second portion of that, of that verse, that positive command. Instead of fear and trouble, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's literally saying sanctify, you know, protect, set apart Christ as holy, as the Lord in your hearts. Christ must reign in our hearts. You could almost imagine that in the, throne of your, in the throne room of your hearts, fears and worries just seek to crowd out or try to sneak into that throne room and sit upon that throne and, and dictate our actions, dictate our worries, the things that we're concerned about, the things we try harder to fix or the things that we expend more energy to alleviate or to get the results we want. Instead, of fears and troubles and worries turning our heads every which way, Christ the Lord and his word is what should be reigning in our hearts. Fears and worries will try to give us false false concerns or false assurances. It's where the word of the Lord, where Christ is honored and reigns in our hearts, those, those fears and worries can be addressed. And that's what we'll see Uh, spelled out in the next slide. What does it look like to have Christ the Lord reign in your heart? Well, the reality of that is is that there's always a defense in your heart for why you do what you do, for what decisions that are made and what decisions, what you decide not to do as well. And so whenever, if somebody were to ask you, there would be a a reasonable approach to things, or there would be a connectedness between I'm making this um, decision or I'm pursuing this to honor the Lord. And that's when Christ is Lord, 
there's sometimes there's that awareness, and that over time it becomes more of a, a habit or a pattern where we honor the Lord because it's a well-trod path. Always be prepared to make that defense. Have and really, for each of us, we need to think about how how is Christ being honored as Lord in my life. If we haven't thought about it, this is going to be new. This is going to be something that we need to think about and consider what does the Lord have to say about this area of my life? What does the Lord have to say about this other area of my life, about my marriage or about about my parenting? Is Christ Lord there? Or do the fears and worries and concerns of the world reign over me, whether I'm aware of it or not? And so that if there was somebody to ask, you would say, this is how Christ reigns in my life, in my marriage or in my parenting, or even in my hopes and dreams for the future, a future relationship or a job or the security or how to deal with parents, friends, pets. Christ as Lord um, is connected to how you live your life. And yet, the rest of this is really talked about in terms of how do we interact with others. Well, with gentleness and respect, knowing that your salvation or Christ being Lord in your hearts isn't something you did on your own. It's really in submission to the Lord. So be gentle and respectful in that, especially to an unbeliever. They don't need your words. They need the gospel to reign in their hearts having a good conscience so that, that's basically saying, knowing that you're pleasing the Lord, so that when you're slandered, and this is the type of sufferings that Peter is addressing, either slandering or reviling for good behavior, your hope is in knowing that it's Christ's honor that you seek to pursue, not the approval of man, not for them to accept you. There's a There's a single-mindedness that a believer has in honoring Christ as Lord. And that's there's that not only connection to why do they do what they do, but they see interactions with other people in light of that. And what does that look like? It means that a believer has has understood what the Lord has to say about their life um, and lives in obedience to that. If we go to chapter 4, we can see a little bit of that. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, this is verse 1, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What were they saved from? For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, Living in sensuality, basically doing whatever they want, right? Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's what the flesh looks like when it's on display, when it reigns in the heart. And it may not look to the fullness of that, but for a believer, there is always that temptation to go back to that. So Peter very practically reminds believers that Salvation or the gospel of God calls for that fleshly life to be cut off and instead to live 
alive before God to live in accordance to the hope that God has given them. And this is that the last part in verse 17 is really the the counsel that we that believers ought to give themselves. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. There is always a settled accounting that following Christ is worth it, even in the face of suffering. There's a calculation that says, yeah, I might suffer for putting in the time or putting in the energy to honor the Lord, to set aside time to fellowship with the people of God in a way that honors him. But it's worth it. It might make other aspects of life more inconvenient and more uncomfortable. But if that's what pleases the Lord, then that's the desire of a believer. Suffering is always, for a believer, is always seen in the richness of the gospel that is given to them by Christ. Matthew chapter 5 is helpful. It says, Blessed are those, in verse 10, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecute the prophets who are before you. Don't let a believer ought not to let go of the gospel and the assurance that they have in it, to be faithful to the word of God and to live that out. Second Corinthians 4 is also helpful. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is referring to, suffer, again, sufferings, whether it be big challenges in life, big losses, or it just be the everyday decisions. All of that is important because what is at stake is not, it's not just salvation, but it's really your testimony of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. The decisions we make in light of suffering reveal where is our hope, where is our, where is our delight, and where is our joy. And the joy of the gospel that God gives for us is sufficient, adequate, and abundant for every aspect of our lives, big and small. We can look to the testimony of Peter himself, the author of this epistle. If you remember, Peter was one of the prominent disciples of Jesus Christ, always ready to speak his mind and to answer any questions that came up. Maybe a little bit too eager. So much so that in the Last Supper, and as we see in the testimony of the Gospel of John, Jesus spoke a word to him. And let's turn there. John 18 verses 15 to 18. Um, but Peter, so Jesus has already predicted that Peter wouldn't be faithful unto death, that Peter would in, instead deny him. And what you see here is that as Peter follows Jesus after he's been arrested, 
starting in verse 18, or sorry, 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And then the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. So the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And that it was as simple as that. Peter, who was so confident in his abilities, confident in, in what he could do or what he thought he could do, that was his denial to a lowly servant girl, someone of no stature in that society, even more so somebody who really couldn't cause him any harm. And yet Peter was ashamed. He was so ashamed he did not associate himself with Christ, he chose to associate himself with just everybody else out there. And he denied Christ. But he didn't remain there. And it's out of that testimony where we look at John 21, where Peter is restored to Christ. Jesus, after the resurrection, talks to Peter, as Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he goes on, and Jesus very kindly says, ask not only multiple times, do you love me? But, he, but Peter, in response, saying, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And more than that, he says, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Jesus restores Peter to ministry, but also gives him assurance that Peter will be faithful, that there will be a kindness there. That's, and you see the transformation that happens because of that where it said that Peter would indeed be faithful and he would indeed be crucified after a faithful ministry. Peter himself could give that testimony that it is better to suffer for the sake of righteousness. He made that mistake, he was restored, and then he lived that out in his life. And that's the same, same testimony that we would all seek to, to, to live out. Earlier, um, last Sunday, or I can't remember now. What day is it? Yeah, two Sundays ago at Cornerstone, Naomi and I had opportunity to share um, about our our dating relationship, and so sufferings, as we as I want to point out, it's not just in big decisions, but it's also in the small decisions or what might seem as small decisions. When I asked Naomi to consider dating me, and I didn't even plan on that, she said no. Similar to Peter, he, you know, it seems like when Peter said that he was not associated with Christ, it seems like a small thing, right? Um, but 
for me, when Naomi refused to date me, that seemed like my world was crashing down. What, but what was the reality? The reality that I had to learn going through that experience is that even though my, experience, my feelings might feel crushed, even though my heart might feel broken, even though I might feel all sorts of insecurities or question things about myself, the reality and the bedrock that I would have as a believer and that, has been, that I would look, that by God's grace would be proven, is that if I'm saved by God, that's more than enough, even if facing rejection or facing estrangement from the things we most desire. What God, out of his kindness, had to teach me is that it's better to rest in God's will, knowing that you're seeking to please the Lord, even if that costs you everything. To be satisfied and being faithful to the Lord is worth more than the approval or the acceptance of this world, especially if it comes at the compromise of the gospel or it comes as a, a distortion or a compromise of, of what would please the Lord, even on everyday things. Instead, instead of seeking to make myself more attractive or more entertaining to Naomi, um, the Lord had to teach me that simply being pleasing to the Lord in pursuing the things of, that would honor him, whether at, in my studies or just in fellowship in the church, um, were sufficient. And don't get me wrong, it was, it was hard, right? When you look across the room and you see the object of your desire um, continue to reject you and to be friends with others. But that's very often the, the case that we deal with is that we can be seduced into thinking, oh, if I just change a little bit here, they'll respond to me. But yet, to be faithful to what is God's calling for us to just live pleasingly to the Lord in the simple decisions. If God has called us to make priorities, let's hold to those priorities. If God's called you to be um, married, to have a spouse, be faithful to that spouse. Not just merely in intimacy, but be faithful to um, love them in a biblical way, to honor them and to encourage them, to be kind to them, to not use them as your personal punching bag or to... Uh, not be frustrated with them. Frustrated is, is our Christianese way of saying angry and murderous intent in a nice way, right? So being frustrated when we don't get our way. Instead, we need to learn and we need to pray that God will continue to help us be faithful in the everyday decisions and to trust for God, the Lord's timing and the Lord's vindication in all these things, to see suffering as not something that is evil. Instead, what is evil is that which would take away um, our testimony before the Lord. And we need to wait. And out of God's kindness, that's what the Lord taught me. And that's why it's such a blessing to be able to say it is worthwhile to wait for the Lord. It is worthwhile to walk obediently to the Lord. And hopefully that's the testimony that, you, that all of us are seeking to not only pursue, but to build upon. If the Lord's kindness will, uh, the Lord is kind to deal with his, his servants, his sons and daughters, and to demonstrate, as we were reminded, that his gospel will abound more and more. 
that if you truly have the living hope of the gospel, that will be demonstrated with increasing holiness and increasing obedience and increasing delight in the things of God. And so, to maybe bring this home a little bit, let's go to the next slide, and we'll see what does this look like in light of the gospel. Well, ultimately our example, more than me or more than Peter, is Christ. Christ himself suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the intent of everything here, is that it would point to God and giving him glory. How did he do that? He put to death in his flesh. He was put, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And that's the example that we are to follow, as we see in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. In the same way of thinking, no longer are we to give ourselves to human passions, but to the will of God. Christ is our example, and Christ is our Lord. So who is it that saves? This needs to be the reality of, of what we understand, is that Christ alone is the one that saves. That's our hope. And since we're supposed to talk about evangelism, that's really our witness as well, is that Christ alone is the one that saves. Christ is alone the one that sustains us through sufferings. It's his gospel at work with us that allows us to endure through sufferings. And such that when we're truly suffering well, we will be bearing witness that Christ has given us that new life, that we can share in that, that he, is not, that he has risen from the grave and that his glorified life is what we, we share in. And this is really what brings power to a testimony or to evangelistic witness. It's, not, it's more than a gospel tract. It's more than four points and a smile. But it's bearing witness to Christ and his gospel, especially when this hurts us. Remember, Peter's writing to, to, to the exiles who are elect of God. And it hurt for them to obey the Lord, to follow the Lord. In similar ways, but very different. Following Christ will cost you. But that is the most powerful testimony. That when, you, when we follow the Lord and walk in his ways to please him, that is the powerful testimony that bears the fruit of the God, that, that testifies of the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we cannot be faithful in and of ourselves. And so, we should ask ourselves, what gospel do we trust? What is the good news that we cling to, or the comforts that we cling to, or the securities that we cling to? And that's going to lead into our authorial intent. Peter, in addressing again these exiles who are elect of God, he wants to communicate to them hope. And what does he say? I would put it this way, he wants them to, to not be dismayed or not to be dissuaded from simply living confidently for what is good and pleasing to the Lord, who is their Lord and Redeemer. Peter wants to communicate encouragement for the believer who strives to please the Lord as a stranger in this sin-soaked world. Anything that would seek to take us off course big or small, from pleasing the Lord. 
suffering that would try to take us off course can sound like you don't fit in or this is inconvenience or how shameful or how weird is that? Instead, we're supposed to place our confidence, our hope, or to remember the hope that we have only in the gospel. And that's really our application on the next slide. If Christ indeed has saved you, then there is a hope that you have in his word and his gospel. Is that your hope? Or do you live or do you so easily turn to the hope that the false hope that this world provides? So let's ask ourselves, where is your hope? What fears or troubles can take you off course? Can not only take you off course, but can stymie or plug up the good works that you ought to be carrying out in obedience to the Lord? What fears and troubles do you allow to reign over or to cover the hope that you ought to have? More than that, what, is, what does your life testify about this? These are not just intellectual things we're talking about, but these are tangible evidences. Is it evident that Christ is, sancti- is sanctified and holy in your heart? Or is it unclear at best whether Christ indeed is leading and, and Lord over your decisions in life? Do you tolerate ongoing sin in your life and it's not a big deal or you're ashamed of it? Christ isn't Lord if sin is dear to you, if sin is protected within your heart. We need to remember that it's God's gospel that saves And that is the greatest security that we can have and that we want to rest in. And so, in closing, let us remember the encouragement from the word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is the hope that Christ has won for us. This is the hope that we would bear to the world. And as a church, let's celebrate this together. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your sufficient word. And for the time that we had in your word, may you make it clear that it is only upon your word your gospel saving grace that we can rest and place our confidence in. Let no word take us away from that, whether it be word of man or our own internal words. But may your word reign in our hearts and our minds, the word that Christ suffered for sin. For he alone was the one that could propitiate, satisfy the wrath of God against our sin, and satisfy your wrath as to do judgment that we deserve as sinners. What a blessing it is that redeemed believers, we can stand before you and that we can call out to you, that we can pray knowing that you hear our prayers. May that hope be lived out and seen in the decisions we make in life. 
in the, the how we view the world around us, how we view ourselves. May we recognize and may we embrace being exiles in this world, for you have made us citizens of heaven, and more so, sons and daughters of the living God. May you cause us to be faithful in these things, for you alone are faithful, and you alone can allow us to endure. May the evidence of your great salvation be clear and powerful within us as we walk in you and walk in your spirit. May you indeed be glorified, not only tonight, but also in the days to come. As tes- uh, may we indeed be testimonies of your great gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.